And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy, we began our series last week just kind of working our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul, from the Apostle Paul to uh, Timothy, who is a um, uh, kind of a protege of the Apostle Paul, if you will. We looked at last week just and we'll see this more as we go, just how uh, Timothy was brought up in the faith to know and love the Lord that, uh, in such a way that it just made it a, a natural progression for Paul to be able to kind of slip in there and, and uh, tell him, tell his household that, that Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures that you've learned since you were a boy. Uh, and, and God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, saved Timothy and Timothy uh, under Paul's mentorship, became the pastor at this church of Ephesus. Church history tells us that Timothy uh, pastored Ephesus until he was martyred uh, for his faith, for uh, really confronting not just his church, but uh, uh, his culture as well. And, uh, and as we'll see, uh, really begin to see this morning, this church was uh, influenced by the culture uh, not unlike the church of today. And so this morning, we're going to look specifically at verses 3 and 4. So we're moving right along here. Um, but verses 3 and 4, I'm going to read it, and then uh, I will pray, and then by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will uh, work through this, be humbled by it, Lord willing, be conformed more into the image of Christ as a result of having spent time in his word. So verses 3 and 4, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing this letter to Timothy, and this letter is to be read in the presence of the church of Ephesus gathered. It says, as I urged you, as Paul urged, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this word, God. We thank you um, again for preserving it for all this time. The Holy Spirit that inspired it, Lord, is the Holy Spirit that preserves it, your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. And we also confess that your word is authoritative, that your word is sufficient, it's living and active, Lord, always relevant, and God, that you, again, by your spirit, can apply it to our lives. And so help us to look this morning to see what your word means and to apply it rightly to our local church, Lord. And we love you, and we give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're taking notes, the, we'll just jump right in. And the first thing that I, I just want us to spend some time considering this morning is the Apostle Paul's charge to Timothy to remain at Ephesus, to, to stay put. And, and, and the phrase or the, uh, the sentence that you can jot down is that staying put is spiritually productive. Staying put is spiritually productive. Right? What, what may seem insignificant to us as, as it relates to instruction is, I think, vitally important to the eternal well-being here of Ephesus. Okay, This, this little, yeah, we would view it as this passing comment that Paul is making, but Paul 
Uh, he said, when I was going, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So this isn't the first time the Apostle Paul has said this to Timothy, right? Paul is repeating himself. I'm, I'm urging you again to stay at Ephesus. And, and if you're familiar at all, again, with the context of what's going on here, if you're f- familiar with uh, Paul's second letter, th- letter to, to Timothy, you know the circumstances that, the, uh, that Timothy is ministering in are really difficult circumstances, right? He's pastoring here, this church of Ephesus, this church that uh, it seems that the Apostle Paul was a key figure in planting the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts when he was there present at the church of Ephesus. He, before he departs, he uh, tells the Ephesian elders that uh, he, uh, to keep watch because he's fearful that when he exits that uh, wolves will come in to devour the sheep, that the church will be uh, influenced by the culture. And so he, he needs the, the elders of the church to be digi- uh, diligent. And, and so not just uh, promoting uh, what is true, which is positive, but also the negative, which is rebuking that which is false. And so uh, Timothy is ministering here in a really difficult context. And, and not only is he ministering in a difficult ta- context, but he's also a very, uh, uh, it seems to be, he seems to be a physically weak pastor as well. And uh, which is why, as we looked at last week, I think the Apostle Paul is, is, uh, is praying mercy over Timothy for, for the ministry that he's, he's called to put his hand to and, and, and plod through and also his, his physical weakness. And, and so uh, Paul is uh, encouraging Timothy. He's saying, keep at it. Stay put. Stay where you are. What you're doing uh, is of eternal significance. It's going to promote, uh, produce spiritual fruit in Ephesus, um, and, uh, and it's just going to have this um, this ripple effect, if you will, on the culture here. And, and generally speaking, what I think we see here is that spiritual growth really blossoms and the, the kingdom of God advances when humble, God-fearing believers joyfully stay put in the context of their local church. Like Timothy, Paul, the, the, the rest of our, our first century brothers and, and sisters, along with those all throughout church history, those throughout the world, those presently in the world, they've ministered in the midst of, of dire circumstances. Right? This isn't necessarily unique. The, 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 the context that Timothy's ministering in isn't necessarily unique. We, we have example after example after example of believers, God-fearing believers, humbly and joyfully staying put to advance the lordship of Jesus Christ in what seems like dire, insurmountable obstacles and circumstances. Right? The, the, the Leviathan beast, if you will, often looks more powerful than our mustard seed faith, doesn't it? Yet, the kingdom of God has continued to advance. The Lord continues to build his church because the faith of the mustard seed moves mountains, and mountains are bigger than Leviathan's. And, and, and the more that I, I read and the more that I study my Bible and the more that I read and, and study examples throughout church history, it seems to me 
that the normative way for us to be healthy as Christians and the normative way for us to make the largest and most long-lasting impact on one another and on our culture is through the simple but hard act of staying put. And in our transient and online society, staying put is, is sort of a lost virtue, isn't it? Now, many of us may be thinking about the Great Commission here, right? Go, go therefore, go in the authority of Christ, right? We worked through this a, a few weeks ago, but I don't think that staying put contradicts the Great Commission at all. I don't think that the Apostle Paul is giving Timothy instructions that contradict the Great Commission. I actually think that it advances it, especially in light of thinking through fulfilling it primarily by evangelizing our neighbors and our community and local church planting. There are times when when leaving is is necessary and when leaving is clear and I could spend all morning giving us caveats that and I'd be happy to discuss this in person but generally speaking we as believers we don't stay connected to our local church and serving in our local church because we tend to think in terms of retreat right Christians have a a, a bad habit in history of being in a perpetual state of retreat not advancement, but retreat. If there's conflict, we retreat. If someone offends us, we retreat. If there's a fight, uh, or if there's this first sign of disagreement, or strife, or controversy, or unsettledness, our first go-to um, response is retreat. And the ironic thing that we often do as Christians is that in our retreating, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we, in a lot of ways, theoretically want the Spirit of God to transform our churches. We theoretically want the Spirit of God to transform our society, but we're unwilling to do the long, hard, ugly, messy, cooperative work that it takes in order to see that through. Right? We, we tend to pray and ask for the Lord to conform us more into the image of Jesus. We tend to pray for clarity and victory over mortifying our own flesh, yet we don't see staying put in the context of our local church as the primary means by which the Lord does that. And we have Paul, again, I think repeatedly telling young Timothy to stay put. And if, again, we're thinking about this in the context in which this letter would be received, it's being received and it's being read in the context of a local church gathered. So they would hear that exhortation, stay put together. And a few questions that I was asking myself as I kind of just meditated and, and thought my way through some of this. Now, how do we as Christians have great commission impact in our local church and community when Christians lack focus and longevity and have sort of a like a squirrel, kind of onto better things sort of approach. The great commission itself really, and we saw this a few weeks ago, it really requires of us long-term plotting, if you will. So how do we have a great commission impact? if we lack focus, if we lack longevity, if we lack the wherewithal to advance in church and society. 
Secondly, how do we learn how to bear the burdens of other people when we're constantly on the go or absent from the community of believers? Right? If, if in Scripture we're called by the Lord to bear one another's burdens, how do we do that unless we stay put? Third, how do we learn how to forgive each other when we leave because we're offended by something? How do we, how how in the world will we ever as a church learn forgiveness when we go from place to place and never put down roots for the long term? And how do we expect a culture that has no understanding of redemption and forgiveness whatsoever to learn it if the church isn't even practicing it? How do we have victory over sin when we constantly remove ourselves from the settings which the Lord has ordained for us to grow in? We've talked about this a lot, these these ordinary means of grace that God promises to use in our lives to stretch us, to grow us, to conform us more into the image of Jesus. Could it be for most of us in the room this morning that the next step in our obedience to the Lord is to heed Paul's counsel to Timothy and, and stay put with God-centered joy and gratitude in your local church. Right, now, now, there are times to leave where you're at, right? Perhaps the Lord's called you and your family out of state or out of the country and your church is involved in that process and is walking you through that process. That's a good way to leave. Perhaps your church is drifted in her commitments to the Lord and His Word, and you've tried to speak with the leaders about it, but you've done so to no avail, and you need to leave peacefully. Again, there's caveats here that we could spend time working through, but the large majority of American evangelicals are not committed to being and staying in community because they, A, have a low view of the local church, and B, discontentment is a sin which they refuse to mortify. And we heed the words of the Apostle Paul, stay put, remain where you are. Get in the trenches of of the gospel advancing in the context of your local church. If you call Deer Park Fellowship home, commit through membership here. If you're visiting this morning and you're a part of an orthodox local church, praise God. Get in the trenches with them if you aren't in the trenches with them already. Remain where you are. Secondly, a commitment to sound doctrine versus what what the Apostle Paul here calls in our text a different doctrine, which you can translate as a false doctrine or an unsound doctrine, if you will. But a commitment to sound doctrine versus different doctrine has consequences on us as individuals, has consequences on us as, as a local church, right? We, we're reminded regularly through the very things that we do each Lord day, Lord's Day as we come and sing together, as we confess our sins, um, as we take the Lord's Supper together. These very things remind us, these actions remind us that we're uh, not just individuals, though we, again, are individuals, but um, we're a corporate body of believers as well the body of Christ, the, the bride of Christ Jesus. But a commitment to sound doctrine versus different doctrine has gospel consequences on individuals 
and on local churches. And I, I just want to spend time, because this is the way the Apostle Paul is doing it this morning, I want to spend a bulk of time just on different doctrine for us here, because we'll see this come up several times uh, over the course of, of working through this letter together. But we see, if you look back at the text, part of verse 3, going to verse 4, remain at Ephesus, right? We see that. I've to, I've, as I've told you, going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, Ephesus. And then we see the purpose here, so that, okay? There's this, this uh, charge to Timothy to effect change here, so that you may charge certain persons. When I read that, I kind of think Paul's like telling Timothy, you know who I'm talking about, Right? <laughs> They're the people that keep you up at night. They're the, they're the reason you want to leave, right? That's what, that's what we do. You charge certain persons, these, these people, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote, which support, which prop up speculations, which we'll see toward the end uh, this morning that, that it... it that that is in direct opposition to how the economy of God, how the household of God is to, to function, normatively speaking. But we, we, this is the chief purpose that Paul... Uh, is what, what is behind Paul charging Timothy to remain, to stay at Ephesus? And that, that, that word um, charge, when he says, Timothy, charge certain persons. That word charge means to give strict orders to give strict orders. Timothy is to give strict orders to certain persons that were promoting a different doctrine. This means, just by good and necessary consequence, this means that there was a normal, established, and practiced doctrine as it related specifically to Christ being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. That, that was already established within the same generation of Christ, which is a miracle even of it, in and of itself. Right? The fact that there was a normal, established, sound doctrine as it relates to Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament is huge, huge here. This is what Paul and Timothy were teaching, and Timothy was to combat people that were teaching in such a way that, uh, uh, that, were, that was in conflict with that, with the, Christ being the Messiah, Christ being God, Christ being Savior, Christ being a sufficient Savior who uh, paid for sins once for all through his shed blood, through his body, and bodily rose for our justification and is seated at the right hand of the Father. This was the sound doctrine that Paul and Timothy were committed with, and the very things going on with these different doctrines uh, were in conflict with that very thing. And we see him even kind of further tease out, if you will, this, he says, myths. He calls some of these different doctrines myths and endless genealogies. Myths and endless genealogies. And, and this could have referred to a couple of different things. It could have referred to some Gnostic teaching that, that spoke of these endless genealogies or aeons, if you will, between God and man. Uh, that, was, that was one teaching that was um, popular during that time that could have very well infiltrated uh, the church of Ephesus. And it could have been Jewish teachers who were obsessed with kind of mythical 
Old Testament genealogies. It could have been a combination of the two. We're not quite sure. Um, There's not a whole lot of um, other passages. There's a few, but that give us uh, a whole, shed a whole lot of light on this. But what I want us to notice for our purposes and, and why this is significant is there's an outworking to these false doctrines. I want us to notice the outworking of these false or different doctrines. In other words, I want us to notice that there's something more sinister going on than just someone having some different beliefs. How we function, how we behave, how we act showcases what it is that we really believe. If you want to know your commitments in life, pay attention to how you operate. Pay attention to how you behave. Pay attention to the things that make you angry. They reveal something about our theological commitments, if you will. But there's two other passages that are within this letter here that Paul writes to Timothy that help give us some clarity, both of which we're going to come and study more, but I want to draw your attention to it even now. If you look on down in chapter 1, look specifically at verses 10 and 11, because we we see the, 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 the verbiage, uh, sound doctrine in one passage, and then the other passage that I'm going to read you in chapter 6, we actually see him use the phrase different doctrine again here. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, says, the sexually, immoral men, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, verse 11, in accordance, right, and here, here's the sound, sound doctrine unpacked, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the, blessed, of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, okay? So, so we see that passage, and then flip over to, to, to chapter 6 with me for just a moment. I'm going to start with just the second part of uh, verse 2. Paul says, teach and urge these things. Okay, second part of verse 2 there. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, okay, we see that there, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that harmonizes, if you will, with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Again, both of these passages that I just read, they're within the, the same letter here. And, and Paul uses the phrase different doctrine and the phrase um, contrary to sound doctrine, right, which uh, harmonize well with, with verses 3 and 4 that we're looking at. But in these passages, we begin to see, we get a glimpse, if you will, uh, of we begin to see the outworking of a doctrine or the outworking of doctrines that are in conflict with the sound words of Christ. Sound words of Christ meaning 
the whole counsel of God's Word, which is what, if you're familiar again with Paul's letters to Timothy, uh, it's what Paul charges Timothy with doing to chase off different doctrine. We see that in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 2. But this commitment to a different doctrine showcased, the, the more sinister thing that it showcased was hearts that were deceived by sin, just just uh, entrenched, hardened, cold, calloused hearts. And, and Paul pairs sins, particular sins even, with that phrase, different doctrines. And, and in doing so, I think he showcases just how practical our beliefs are. He's showing just how practical our beliefs are. For our purposes, I want to pair some of these with, with some of maybe the lies or the strange doctrines, different doctrines that we believe and preach to ourselves. But Paul lists, he lists sexual immorality here, right? Our lusts, our secret addictions, our adulteries, right? I'm not hurting anyone. That may be the different doctrine or the strange doctrine that we live by. Not hurting anybody. Paul lists homosexuality here. Love is love. Or this is who I really am. That's some of the different doctrines, if you will, that are behind this particular lifestyle. Paul lists enslavers. Kidnappers is how that word's translating. The outworking of some Darwinian worldview that teaches that we're nothing more than animals versus we were created in the image of God. Right? Instead of viewing someone as a person creating the image of God, we view people as property. Right? A strange, different doctrine. Paul lists liars here. It's better that they not know. It's for their good that they don't know. Or I'm going to do more damage if I just confess this. Man is bigger than God. It's the strange doctrine that we believe there. Paul lists perjurers, those who deliberately give false testimony under oath. Perhaps there are similarities there between between them and liars, right? You perjure, a liar under oath will lie, perjury. There's this fear of man there. Maybe there's this um, this strange doctrine of I'm not going to give an account to anyone or, you know, with any, any of these list of sins. Man, as long as no one finds out, not knowing that the Lord sees all, that the Lord knows all, that God is a God of justice, and that we want to be a people that are found in Christ. And then verse 11 here, it ends with whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. This is a list that doesn't allow for any of us to be off of the hook. Just when we begin to think of so-and-so, we're hit with something and we're like, this is me. This is me. And because the sound words of Jesus Christ mean that Christ is the the long-awaited for the Messiah, he's he's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, that he really is our sufficient Savior, here's the good news in all of this. These are sins which Christ died for. These are sins which Christ died for. These are all sins which are not outside of the reach of redemption. Yet, instead of embracing the sound words of Jesus, which is 
I think, Clark, you were saying the, the confession of sin, assurance of pardon, which is freedom, which is forgiveness, which is reconciliation. We double down in these enslaving, different, strange doctrines. We double down in them. Our, our commitments to doctrine contrary to Christ flow from this out-of-control sin nature, and they solidify and justify all kinds of further wickedness and immorality. It's just a downward spiral. It's a downward spiral. It's like we see all that's lovely and beautiful in Christ Jesus, and we get to a place where we say, that's ugly. And we get to a place where we see all these things that are contrary to the sound words of Christ Jesus, and we say, that's beautiful. And in that, we should see the blasphemous nature of our sin, right? And look, look at chapter 6 that I just read a moment ago. Because there we even get a glimpse into what seems to be the personality or, or the, the mood or the spirit, if you will, of an individual who, who's committed to different doctrine. We kind of get this here. And, 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 I, and I would commend all of us to evaluate ourselves this morning in light of, of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 6 here. But the, the latter part of verse 2 all the way down to verse 6, we see that the, the spirit or the mood of this person, they're puffed up, right? They're conceited, which means they're a lover of self, even though they may not frame it that way. They, they refuse to understand or even see sense if the facts are even staring them in the face because they think that they're, they're the smartest person in the room. They crave conflict and controversy. They live for it. It's their very food. Right? In conflict, they, they get to showcase how great and smart they are and how dumb everyone else is. They dispute words the meaning of them, the usage of them. They're the word police. They say what can be used, how it can be used, when it can be used. They're envious, which literally means spite and resentment toward the possessions of others. It's unfair what others have. Everyone should have what others have, which means I should have what others have. There's dissension, according to Paul, which is bitterness and strife that always seems to be underneath the interactions with other people. There's slander, which is defamation. Right? We do this intentionally through gossip, or we do this unintentionally when we speak beyond what we know. There's evil suspicions. This person is, is very suspicious, right? which is a posture toward those that we view as opposition. And then Paul says that there's constant friction in relationships with others. All right, we make others uncomfortable and perhaps even make others timid because we're a, quote, I'm going to say what's ever on my mind type of person, and we use that to justify being rude and domineering. And certainly, as we work through a passage like this, like 1 Timothy 1, we work through a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
we recognize that the spirit of our age is one which is committed to a different doctrine. But what we don't often realize and what we need to repent of quickly as a church is that we may confess sound doctrine, but our thinking and the fruit of our lives and labors shows a commitment to a different doctrine. I'm going to say that one more time so we all get it. We may confess as a church sound doctrine, but our thinking and the fruit of our lives and the fruit of our labors shows, demonstrates a commitment that we have to a different doctrine. We may confess as a church what Paul calls the sound words of Jesus Christ, but we've been so influenced by the culture, which is what was going on in the church of Ephesus. We've been so influenced by the culture that we conduct ourselves in such a way that demonstrates a commitment to to that which is contrary to his words. This kind of doctrine that Timothy was told to confront, The, the kind of doctrine that solidifies and justifies all sorts of wickedness and all sorts of strife. And how is that possible? How is that possible? How is it possible that this could happen in the context of the local church? How is it possible that this could happen in the context of the local church that was planted during the lifetime of Jesus? Things got bad real quick, didn't they? And I think there's two reasons primarily. These aren't the only reasons, but I think there's two reasons primarily. The first is this. We underestimate our sin nature, and we overestimate our ability to think clearly. We underestimate our sin nature, and we overestimate our ability to think clearly, which is prideful, right? We see that implied both in chapter 1 and chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. We've been saved by God in Christ Jesus. We're referred to as saints in the Scripture, not because of anything that we've done, but all because of what God in Christ has done for us. But sin still remains in us. And it, it has to be put to death. The only way it can be put to death is by the sword of the Spirit. It's the only way that dragons are slayed is through the sword of the Spirit. We're not strong in ourselves. We're weak. We're strong in Christ, which means we must use Christ's resources. We regularly fall into patterns of striving independent of the Lord. And we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh, but we do that through recognizing and practicing God's methods for killing sin, for um, thinking clearly, for resting in Jesus. So we underestimate our sin nature and we overestimate our abilities to think clearly. Secondly, our intake. And, And by intake, I mean Deep dive, deep dive, okay? We chew this food slowly. We, we, we in, enjoy every morsel of it. Our intake of cultural offerings like news or social media or entertainment, our, our intake of cultural offerings far outpace our intake of spiritual disciplines, Our intake of cultural offerings far outpace our intake of spiritual disciplines. I I read just this week about how a former Chinese citizen was astonished by how engaged Americans are, particularly with the news. 
She said that generally Chinese citizens don't even engage with the news because they just assume they're being lied to. Let me let you in on something. Lies abound, right? Lies abound. And we're laughing because we know it's true, right? Lies abound. Lies abound on the news. Lies abound on social media. Lies abound in entertainment. Yet, we look at that stuff and indulge on it and take a deep dive every single day. And I mentioned this last week. This is discipleship. This is discipling you. This is discipling your children. And we engage with it every day like sheep going to the slaughter. Now, I'm not saying that it's evil in and of itself, but we need to pay attention and take audit. Because we intake it like sheep going to the slaughter because of point one, right? We underestimate our sin nature and we overestimate our ability to think clearly. And in our overindulgence, of these things, some of which we should never indulge in because they're wicked in the first place, right? There's no no such thing as moderation in wickedness. But our overindulgence of these things, our gluttony of these things, in that gluttony, we neglect what's spiritually good for us. And I mentioned methods just a moment ago. Those are the spiritual disciplines that are anemic in our lives at best. If we rightly discern our sin nature, we should rightly discern the way to subdue our flesh. We should rightly discern the way to engage with those things that are profitable to our soul, and we should do so on a regular basis. And, And it's through the things that we already know. It's through the things that we already know. And I'll give us I'll give it to us in a list this morning. With the joy of our triune God in our hearts, we should be a people, as God's bride, should be confessing sins regularly. We should be repenting of sins regularly. We should be resting in Jesus knowing that our sins are forgiven. So with the joy of the triune God in your heart, confess your sins, repent of your sins, rest in Jesus knowing that your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing. Secondly, worship publicly with God's church every day, or every Lord's Day. Worship with God's church every Lord's Day. If you're traveling, find a good, healthy local church to visit while you're traveling. If your kids are involved with sports that take you away from Lord's Day worship, quit. That means it's an idol. Worship publicly with God's church every Lord's Day. Third, read your Bible every day or listen to it. Intake God's Word regularly. Fourth, pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord every day. He's your strength. He's your sustenance. And and he, He is those things in a world that will devour you otherwise. And then fifth, worship with your family every day in the home. And I mean this. The church has far too long neglected this. Worship with your family every day in the home. For husbands, be a man. Stop whining. Stop despairing. Lead your family in worship to the Lord every day. Speak of the faithfulness of God. Speak of the beauty of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
speak of the beauty of God's bride, the church, that's been washed with that shed blood with your family. Deuteronomy 6 tells us to do this when we rise, when we sit, when we lie down. In other words, do this all the time. Do this all the time. If you want to see gospel flourishing in your home, I promise you that the Lord will use these means. This isn't a, prob- this isn't a promise of health and wealth. right? We know that the prosperity gospel is heretical, is different doctrine. This is a promise of spiritual flourishing. Right? This is a promise of spiritual flourishing, and this is how you find it. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we really want that? Do we cherish this? The Lord uses these means to allow you and your family to feast on Christ. He uses these means to transform you and your home into the image of Christ. Produces that gospel flourishing. And if you find yourself just constantly tied up in knots inwardly, if you find that your life is a disaster, if you find that your kids are disengaged from the Lord, come and drink consistently from this deep, thirst-quenching well that the Lord offers to you for free. For free. It's yours. It's yours. In Christ, it's yours. Do we want it? And then lastly, we see that all this this commitment and this obsession that we have with different doctrine, this obsession that we have with strange doctrine, it clouds what we should be about. The household of God should be about God's business. The household of God should be about God's business. Verse 4 Don't devote yourselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than, right, or contrary to the stewardship from God that is by faith. That word stewardship, it finds its origin in two Greek words, one which is translated as household and the other which is translated as stewardship. In other words, Paul is saying that unsound doctrine gets in the way of God's household work entrusted to us by faith. God in Christ Jesus has brought us into his glorious household. I pray that we don't grow desensitized to that. I pray that that stirs something in us emotively. Because it's not just some intellectual ascent that God has brought us into his household. And this should be experiential for us. God has brought us in Christ, by Spirit, into His household. All right? We're sons and daughters. We're not orphans. We're a royal priesthood. We're a chosen nation. And God's household is orderly and productive, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's everlasting. Right? Being a part of His household means that we're to be strong in His might. Ephesians chapter 6. Being, being a part of his household means that we forsake any different doctrine than what he's entrusted to us. He calls it elsewhere the good deposit. God in Christ has trusted us with this good deposit. And we're to function in such a way that our lives complement the sound words of Jesus and announce his lordship. 
Announce His Lordship in the church. Announce His Lordship to your neighbors. Announce His Lordship to the peninsula. Announce the Lordship to this state, to this world. We're called by God in Christ through the strength of the Spirit to be productive citizens of God's kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? A few takeaways for us this morning. First is this, and these are available in your worship guide. Commit to the Lord by committing to His church. Invest for the long haul. Fulfill the Great Commission. Secondly, examine your sins and habits in light of the finished work of Christ and make adjustments where needed and without delay by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Examine your sins and habits in light of the finished work of Christ and make adjustments where needed and without delay by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Third, repent of any worldview that does not pass the test of Scripture. If you find yourself in alignment with worldviews that promote anything contrary to the sound words of Jesus, forsake them, cling to Christ by clinging to His Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You again for... Your word, thank you for allowing us to spend time in it, God, and I pray that you would use it to build us all up in Jesus Christ, Lord. Thank you for this church body, Lord, and for bringing us all together, Lord, people from just different backgrounds, God. You've brought us together. We have the most intimate thing we could ever have in common together, which is Jesus. Thank you for that, and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.